please turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible, we've mentioned this before, but there's an uh, app you can get on your smartphone, your mobile device uh, called Version Bible. And if you go there, there's uh, uh, the ESV Bible, which is the Bible we're using. So you can use that. And there's also, if you go to live events on that app, you can find our worship service with all the notes and uh, ways uh, ways to give us prayer requests to pray for you. It's our, our joy to, to be able to do that. And then also a place you can ask questions about the sermon. And we answer those in our post-Sunday app each week. So I encourage you to, to uh, avail yourself of that if, if you need to. Uh, also, as you turn to 1 John 5, let me just remind you uh, that after this service in the banquet hall across the hallway there, in the banquet room across the hallway there, we're going to be having our, our Close the Gap meeting, one of the several things we're doing to kind of help close the gap in our, our building campaign. Now, the, the purpose of that is, is a couplefold. Uh, first of all, uh, we think it's important for anyone who is a, a part of our church, if they're able, to be participating in this ministry. We don't think this is the ministry for just a few of us, but we want to together uh, do this ministry of, of building a building if God allows. But we don't want to just build a building, we want to make sure we build a building in the right way for the right reasons. And we think it'd be a a tragedy of eternal proportions if we uh, simply construct a building, but don't do so in a God-glorifying way, in a way that that reaps eternal benefit for for us who participate in it, and uh, ultimately in a way that brings glory to God on into eternity. So, if you're newer to our church, uh, our encouragement, and you are, you're part of it, you're part of this community, we, we encourage you to consider being a part of this ministry that all of us are engaging in together. I encourage you to come and uh, hear about kind of the vision of why we're doing this and, and how we're doing this, which may be different than some other things you've been involved in, in the past, and we want to make sure we do so, all participate in this in a, in a God-glorifying way. Or if you just have questions about where we are in this process, I encourage you to come. Uh, after after church here and there's a pizza and salad so pretty exciting and i encourage you to come and be a part of that um and i'm i'm hungry already i i smell like bacon and i didn't even get to eat any earlier my daughter was cooking some bacon and it set off the alarms and everything so our house permeated this bacon smell i'm smelling it right now so let's get going here right um no, hopefully, uh, so hopefully you can come and be a part of that here in a little bit. We're in First John, First uh, John chapter five, and I'm reading uh, from the English Standard Version of the Bible. We're looking at verses four and five this morning, but we're going to read verses one through five to help us get a little bit of the context. And so, if you're able to, in honor of God, if you'd stand as we read His Word together, First John chapter five, looking at verses four and five, but reading verses one through five, beginning in verse one. John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that has overcome the world our faith who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that jesus 
is the Son of God. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Uh, let's pray. Father, we, we do love you, and we have confidence that we are overcomers through our faith in your Son, Jesus. Help us to understand that reality this morning. And then, Father, I pray by your grace that we would live out this reality in our lives uh, this week, and this month if you grant us this time, and in the years to come, again, if, if you allow. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. When I was a youth pastor, the kids loved playing these real-time strategy computer games. They, they just loved playing these things, like uh, games like Rise of Nation and, and StarCraft, uh, games like that. And in these games, what would happen is you would be given an army, and your, your task was to build bases and, and build up your army and train your army and gather resources and you kind of had to manage all these different things and, and build a, a force. And what the kids would do is they would get together in groups, and this was before the internet could, could handle all this uh, information and data sharing and stuff, and so they'd, they'd get in a home and they would gather these, these uh, two teams together. And one team would get in one room and the other team would get in another room and they'd be connected by, by wires and um, I wasn't very very good at this. And, and by the way, it, it wasn't just the kids, right? Um, there are adults in this room right now that played to this game till you know, irresponsible hours of the morning. And I know they did because I was with them, okay? So it wasn't just the kids. But uh, these, these games, uh, I wasn't ever very good at them. No one ever, like, just loved having me on their team. What I would, and I was thinking about this this week as I was looking at verses 4 and 5 here in 1 John 5, um, what I would do is I would gather the resources and I'd build my little buildings and then the team would give me some sort of assignment and I would go and I would do this assignment and then I would come back to my base and I would find it much more on fire than I had left it and in shambles, you know. And I, what had happened is while I'd been gone, some enemy of which I was completely unaware had come and destroyed me. I had lost a battle I didn't even know I was fighting and I thought about that reality, or virtual reality, as I was thinking about verses 4 and 5 here. I'm thinking about how do I convey the importance of what John is talking about here in verses 4 and 5, because I'm thinking, as I think about verses 4 and 5, that John is describing a victory over a battle that many of us don't know we're fighting. John is describing how you can have victory over a foe that many of you don't know you're engaged in a conflict with. And so to convey the importance and, and the, the, the breadth of what John is saying in verses 4 and 5, I think what I have to do first is convince us of the reality of the struggle that he's talking with, that we have victory in. So, so let me begin by doing that. Keep your finger there in 1 John 5, either physically or digitally or whatever, and turn back to 1 John chapter 2. And remember what we talked about several months ago as we came to verses 15 through 17 of 1 John chapter 2. Remember what John writes there? He says in verse 15 of 1 John 2, Do not love the world. Don't love the things of the world. 
If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now remember what we said as we looked at these verses some months ago. We said there in verse 16, you find the characteristics of a person who has lost the battle with the world. A person who has succumbed to loving the world. You see three characteristics there, right? First of all, the person who's lost the battle with the world is a person who is unwilling to fight the the physical desires they have, the desires of the flesh that John describes there. And I think what John has in mind primarily, perhaps, is, is immorality. He's talking about a person who indulges the, their, their, uh, the, their physical passions in a way that doesn't glorify God, in a way that's contrary to how he's called us, called us to use our, our bodies. But it can also describe a, a wide range of ways in which we fulfill the desires of the flesh. It's not just immorality, it's not just pornography, it's not just those sorts of things, but it might also be gluttony. A, a person who says, I mean, I just, I just love the, the, the sensation of the, the physical things as my body eats, I just love that. Or, or maybe it's a person who just uh, loves their body and loves working out and the feeling of, of working out and just those desires of the flesh consume them. They're, they're so in love with, with, with fleshly things. That's a person who's succumbed to loving the world. The other characteristic that he gives there, the second characteristic he gives there, is a, a person who's, who's uh, following the desires of the eyes. And remember, we said God has given us our eyes and our senses so that we could comprehend the physical world around us, so that we could look at material things. And as we see material things, our eyes would be turned, as we process those things, our eyes would be turned upward and we would worship God. We see physical things, we see the created realm, and God's desires that we'd use our eyes to see the created realm and worship Him. But instead, what happens to the person who loves the world is their eyes behold the physical things of the world, and their eyes, instead of being this instrument of worship, become these these instruments of idolatry. I see a home, and I I love the beauty of this home, and I I want that home. And I I see a a car, and I see the beauty of the car, and I I want that physical object. Or I see clothing, and I I see how good clothing looks on someone, and I I want that clothing. Or I I want whatever it is that my eyes see, they just become these idol factories, constantly producing these idols. That's a person who's lost the war with the world. The third characteristic he gives in verse 16 is a person who takes pride in possessions. And I think those are both tangible and, in, and intangible things. Tangible things like, like my, my bank account or my retirement account. Or intangible things like status in my job or in the community or in church. A person who's lost at least the battle with the world is a person who has succumbed to this, this love of, of possessions. John gives us these these three characteristics here. And some of you, I hope, as I'm talking about these things, some of us are being reminded of this battle that's taking place that that sometimes we're not even aware of. Some of us have just kind of simply succumbed to the love in the world and don't even think about it as a battle. Now, why is this a big deal? Why is this such a big deal? Why does it matter if we, we like some material things? 
John tells us why it's a, a big deal. It's a big deal, John says, because you can't love the world and God. Loving the things of the world is completely incompatible loving God. And if I want to love God, which I hope that we do, I must not love the world. In other words, what do I need? I need victory. I need victory over the, my eyes. I need victory over my flesh. I need victory over the, the, the pride that I take in possessions, both tangible and intangible. And here's what John says here in 1, you can turn back to 1 John 5. Here's what John says in 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Now, do you see why that is a precious promise? As we think about the danger of the world and how we can't love the world and love God at the same time, how disobedience to God means that we're not uh, in relationship with God. Perpetual disobedience to God means that we're not born of, of God. That we don't love the children of God. We don't love, we'll talk about that in a second. All these things that John is saying in these, these verses, it is a big deal that we be overcomers. And here's what we see in 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. We are overcomers through faith in Christ. That's what we're going to grasp as we, we look at these verses. Faith, specifically faith in Jesus Christ, Son of God, Messiah, is the means through which God gives us victory over the world. You are an overcomer through faith in Christ. That's what we're going to see this morning. And let's look here, first of all, at verse 4 and see this first truth. You are an overcomer. Verse 4, he writes, Everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, as I look at verse 4, there's kind of five questions that I asked as I kind of went through this, this passage this week, this verse specifically. The first question that I had as I thought about verse 4 is, well, okay, who is it that's overcoming? Who is it that's, that's going to be an overcomer? Now, look just a few verses earlier at verse 1. I want you to remember this chart that we had a few weeks ago. Verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. Now, remember that, that flow chart I showed you a few weeks ago? You had this, this circle, and in the circle were a bunch of stick people, marvelously drawn. And as you saw that, that first circle, I said, okay, in that first circle is every single person, every single person who believes that Jesus is the Christ. And what we saw is that every single person in that circle who believes that Jesus is the Christ is also part of another circle, and that circle is those who've been born of God. So every single person who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And what else do we see? We saw that every person who has been born of God also loves God. And every person who loves God loves the children of God. So you, you see that? Every single person is part of each of those, those circles. Everyone who's, been, who's believed that Jesus is the Christ, who's been born of God, every person who's been born of God loves the Father, every person who loves the Father loves those who have also been born of the Father. And you say, well, how do I know if I love those who've been born of the Father? John says, well, if you obey his commandments. 
In other words, what you see is you see that that flow chart is the three tests that John gives us for fellowship that we've talked about again and again in 1 John. The truth test, do I believe the right things about who Jesus is, who God is, how he deals with sin? Do I, am I obedient to God? And do I love God and others? The truth test, the obedience test, and the love test are all contained there in verses 1 through 3. And now here in verse 4, John gives us another everyone. So everyone who's been born of God believes that Jesus is the Christ. Everyone who's been born of God loves the Father. Everyone who loves the Father loves the, the children. All, you know, well, none of those things can be untrue of a person who's been truly saved. Now, here's verse 4. He uses everyone again. Everyone who has been born of God, and what does that mean? If you've been born of God, well, it means you obey His commandments. It means you love the Father. It means you believe that Jesus is the Christ. It means, you know all those things we've talked about before. You've been born of God. Every single person who's been born of God overcomes the world. What does this mean? Who is it that overcomes? It's every single believer. All Christians, all those who have been born of God, are overcomers. Every person who's recognized that they're a sinner, that they can't deal with sin on their own, have recognized who Jesus Christ is, that he's the one who deals with sin in a way that we can't, through his perfect life, his death on the cross, his resurrection, Every person who places their faith in him has been born of God, loves the children of God, is going to be obedient to God, and, verse 4 tells us, is an overcomer. So that's the first question. Who is an overcomer? Well, it's every person who's a Christian. Now, as I look at verse 4, and this, this truth that you're an overcomer, there's another question that I have as I think about that phrase. Well, what does it mean to be an overcomer, Right? That word, we see it several times in Scripture, and it, it simply means to be one who, who conquers or one who defeats, one who is victorious. In Romans 8.37, Paul writes, And all these things were more than conquerors, were overcomers through him who loved us. 1 Corinthians 15.57, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what is an overcomer? An overcomer is a victorious one, a conqueror, one who does defeating. Not one who is defeated, but one who defeats someone else or something else okay we're all there right that, that makes sense one more minor question right who am i defeating <laughs> if i'm a christian who's an overcomer I'm, I'm one who's a victorious one what exactly is it that i'm i'm defeating in what sense am i victorious and let me just share with you some cool things that scripture tells us about what or who christians overcome First of all, we've seen this already in 1 John, we overcome spiritual forces. 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, John says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one, the, the enemy, Satan. Verse 14, he says, young men, you're strong. The word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Christians are overcomers of, of satanic forces, demonic forces, verse Verses 1 through 4 of 1 John 4 tell us that. 
He says, false prophets, this is 1 John 4, 1, false prophets have gone out in the world. And then in verse 4 of 1 John 4, he says, little children, you're from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Sometimes I, when I'm discipling believers or, or doing some counseling with someone, someone tells me, well, Daniel, uh, one of the things that frightens me is the idea that someday I may encounter demons. That, that, that scares me. I tell them, well, good news, bad news. Um, bad news is that's not some future day for you. Okay, If you are alive and in this world, you've encountered the demonic realm. The good news is what John tells us here. Greater is he who's in you than, than he who's in the world. The demonic realm is ever-present. Remember what the demonic realm's goals are? We've talked about this as we've gone through 1 John. To destroy and to deceive, to to do things that are going to lessen the the magnification of God's glory in people's lives. And you and I face demonic forces on on a daily basis. Greater than he who's in you than he who's in the world, John tells us. So, who do Christians overcome? Well, they overcome spiritual forces. We also see in 1 Corinthians 15 that we overcome death itself through Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 57, Paul writes, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're victorious. We're overcomers of death itself through Jesus Christ. So we're overcomers of spiritual realm, of physical world of death. We also overcome the world, and that's what this passage is telling us. We're overcoming the world, and the world we've seen before is, is that in, first, in, in John, John's using the world in the sense of this idea of a place that's set up in opposition to the kingdom of God. So you have the kingdom of God that God is bringing about, and there's this, this world that is set up in opposition to the kingdom. Now, here, here's the fourth question that I had as I kind of went through verse 4. Okay, I know who's an overcomer. I, I kind of understand a little bit what, what it means to overcome and, and uh, what, what I'm going to overcome, but... Uh, when it says that I'm overcoming the world, what does that victory look like? I mean, I just beat the world. In what? <laughs> what kind of victory am I achieving? Is it like a chess game? I mean, is it like you know, I beat the world in an arm wrestling contest? What, what does it mean to overcome the world? What does it mean to be a conqueror of the world? What I believe it means, based on what we've seen in 1 John, is that those desires of the world that are set up in opposition to the desires of God being worshipped, I'm victorious over. Those loves that would compete with my affection for God, I achieve victory over. And I'm rightly able to worship and love God. And put away the things of the world. I've, I've overcome that. As Paul would write in Titus chapter 2, 
verses 11 and 12, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. In other words, all those temptations that would prevent obedience to God that we've, we've talked about in verses 1 through 3, there's a power that now allows us to achieve obedience, allows us to overcome the world, allows us to rightly love and worship God and to love His children. We now have the ability to do so despite the pull of the world and the desires of the world. fifth question is, well, how do we do that? How do we achieve this victory? And the answer is faith, and we'll talk more about that in a second. But verse 4 tells us that we are overcomers. All of us who are believers. Now, I know what, I think I know what some of you, I hope I know what some of you are thinking. I want to address an issue that some of you are already, you're already there. You've already like set up camp on an issue and you're waiting for me to get there too because it's bugging you. You say, okay, Daniel, you're claiming that I am an overcomer. You're saying that this passage is teaching that all those who have been born of God, who believe that Jesus is the Christ, are born of God, love the children of God, love the Father, and, and everyone who has been born of God, you're saying, has, has overcome the world, has overcome the temptations of the world, doesn't follow the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the boastful pride of possessions. You're saying that that's true of those who've been born of God. You're saying that believers are, believers are overcomers. I'm not feeling it. Daniel, what are you going to do with that? Because the love of the world is very much still present with me. Whenever Whitney and I got married, the day after we got married, we got on an airplane and flew to St. Thomas. Spent a week there. And those of us who are married know that there's a, a weird thing that happens that first couple weeks, months that you're married... It, it, it's, just, it's just strange to suddenly be with a person all the time. I asked Whitney in between services, uh, hey, how'd you feel about this illustration? She goes, it made me very uncomfortable. I understand why you didn't ask me about it beforehand. <laughs> I said, I love you. But that first, I can remember, uh, you know that moment when you wake up in the morning and you're just, things are kind of a little bit, just not quite, everything's not quite there. And so I, I remember that first week of marriage, waking up and going, something's off. There's someone in the bed next to me. And then waking up a little bit more and going, it's Whitney. Oh man, what's happened? We are in some serious trouble. Oh wait, we're married. We're cool. For a moment there, you know, I, I forget that we're married. I forget that, you know, this relationship has changed. But even though in, the, in that moment, I've kind of, forget, you know, I'm not quite clear, why is this woman in the bed next to me? Um, it doesn't change the objective reality that we are married. Everything's okay. I, I think right now in our redemptive history, 
Something's taken place. We've passed from death to life. For those of us who have been born of God, we've recognized that we're sinners. We've placed our faith in Jesus Christ for our salvation in him alone. And, and yet, our salvation hasn't been fully realized yet. We haven't been glorified. There's still a temptation to live as we, we used to live. And so this, this truth that we are overcomers isn't always how we feel. But the truth is, if you are not an overcomer, or you don't feel like an overcomer this morning, one, one of, there's one of two possibilities. Either the first possibility is that you're not a believer, you haven't been born of God, and you need to ask yourself, have I trusted in Jesus as, as the Christ, as the Messiah, as my salvation based fully upon my confidence in Him and His work? Or secondly, am I just not living like who I am by God's grace. And the truth of Scripture is that ultimately I am going to be an overcomer. And if I'm never an overcomer, I'm not born of God. We must live as who God has created us to be. As who's changed us to be. You are an overcomer. Now how? So we talk more about this. But here, here's the how. You're an overcomer through faith in Christ, verse 5. You're an overcomer through faith in Christ. Who is it, John writes, that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that, or believes that Jesus is the Son of God? In verse 1 he said, believes that Jesus is the Christ. And there, there are these parallel truths, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Son of God, Son of Man. Verse 5, by the way, is going to set up the rest of the chapter. There's several important truths that we encounter here in verse 5. Let me just give you three of them. The first truth that we see here in verse 5 is that not everyone is an overcomer. He says, who is it? Who is it? Which people is it that overcomes the world? Well, it's, it's only the ones who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It, it's exclusive. The second truth that we encounter here is that those who do overcome do so by faith. The way that we become overcomers is not through our own works. When I tell you this morning that you're an overcomer, I'm not encouraging you to engage in some exercise in positive thinking. I can remember, this isn't some Oprah-esque message. In junior high on the cross-country team, I remember our coach one time had us go into a, this room, and we, we laid down, and he turned off the lights. He said, okay, I want you to, to visualize success. And he kind of had us think through each part of the course that we were going to run and, and think kind of positive thoughts about running th th this course. And I have no idea how effective positive thinking is or isn't. Uh, my, my guess, I haven't seen any scientific studies, but my guess is that thinking positive thoughts can can be beneficial in some endeavors, that it can help you achieve some level of success, at least more so than if you thought really negative thoughts all the time. Probably true. I don't know. But I do know this. Positive thinking, thinking nice thoughts, just kind of saying, I'm an overcomer, I'm an overcomer, isn't going to help you in your struggle with the world and the love of the world. John says here, you're an overcomer, how? You're an overcomer by faith. Now here's the third thing. Not only is not everyone an overcomer, 
and those who do overcome, overcome by faith. But here, this is so important. I want you to, to catch this with me. Your faith has a specific focus, and that's the person, Jesus Christ. It's not just a general faith. It's not just a faith in some, some deity. It's not a faith in yourself. It's not just believing in yourself. It's not having, you know, I, I believe I can do this. It's not that kind of faith. It's a specific faith in Jesus Christ as, as, as the Son of God. He's, he's, he's Son of God. He's Son of Man. He's Messiah. And, and I believe my faith is in Him as Son of God, as Son of Man, as fully God, fully man, as fully Messiah. My faith is in Him to deal with the sin that I could not deal with. This is literally a matter of eternal life or eternal death. This is why it's so crucial that we believe and teach sound doctrine. I was talking with a friend this past week, uh, Pastor Fred from Bethany Baptist Church. He and I were kind of talking about our, our personalities and how they affect our ministry. And I was talking, you know, I wish there's all there's things of the other people's personalities that I look at. Boy, I wish I had this skill or this ability or whatever. And, you know, I think about what Paul says in First Corinthians one. Is he says, you know what? Some people say I'm of Paulus, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul. He says, you know, Christ hasn't been divided. He says, in, in my ministry, my, my goal is to, to preach Christ and not have anyone distracted by these peripheral issues because I want people to focus on Christ. It is so important that the supreme focus of our faith be the person Jesus Christ. Here's why. You have no hope. You have no hope of being victorious over loving the world unless you value Jesus Christ rightly. Unless you recognize the supreme worth and value of Jesus Christ, you will not be able to overcome the world. Love of the world must be replaced by a greater love. That's the person Jesus. I was reading an, an article this, this last week, probably many of you saw people refer to it, and uh, it's by Rachel Held Evans. She wrote a blog article this past week. Many have expressed concerns with it. And her article was, I'm, I'm not going to be fair to it by just quoting a couple paragraphs, and I'm just going to own that. Uh, but her, part of her blog article was about Abraham being called by God to sacrifice his son Isaac. And I'm going to just read the opening and closing of her blog article. She says this, as she opens, she says, It's a test I'm certain I would have failed. Get your son, get a knife, slit his throat, and set him on fire. I'd like to think that even if those demands thundered from the heavens in a voice that sounded like God's, I'd have sooner been struck dead than obey them. That's how she opens her article. And she closes with this. I'm not yet a mother, and still I know deep in my gut that I would sooner turn my back on everything I know to be true 
than sacrifice my child on the altar of religion. Maybe the real test isn't whether or not you drive the knife through the heart. Maybe the real test is in whether you refuse. Let me just tell you, um, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemous. And, And here's why. It wasn't a voice that sounded like God's that told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. It was God's voice. God told Abraham, this is what you do. And the point of the story isn't that all of us should be really willing to sacrifice our children. It's not like, hey, you know what? Christians should be a bunch of people who are walking around saying, you know what I do? Sacrifice my child on an altar. Any moment, I'm ready. What we see about the story of Abraham is that God had promised Abraham by by his authority as God, here is what I'm going to do with Isaac. I am going to make Isaac the means by which I bless the nations. He is going to be the father of many nations. That is what God had told Abraham he would do. And now God also in his authority says, do this to Isaac. And the point of worshiping God is to say, God is God, and God has ability and comprehension far beyond what I possess, the ability to know, the ability to do. And whenever God says to do something, the fact that he's God means that I do it. And what seems like it's going to be the worst thing in my perspective for my son, I trust God that if he says to do this, I'm going to do it. That's what worship is. As the writer of Hebrews says about Abraham's perspective, Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now here's here's why I believe that this writer is so, so very wrong. Because if you do not have a love for God that says, God, you are God and I will worship you no matter what and be obedient to you no matter what, if you do not have that type of love for him, you haven't overcome the world. You can't overcome the world. What you have to say, this is what Jesus said. What you have to come to the the conclusion is, okay, I'm an overcomer through faith in Christ. In other words, my trust is in Jesus Christ as the one who is worth an infinite value. There is nothing that I put up next to God, next to Jesus Christ, and say, this thing is better than Jesus. So I I put the desires of my flesh next to Jesus. And I say, okay, Jesus, here's here's my flesh and here's you. You're better. Then I take the, the things that my eyes see, the, the, the houses and the cars, the clothes, the, the physical beauty, and I put Jesus here and I put that next to Jesus and say, Jesus, you're better. I put my, my pride and my possessions next to Jesus. I put the, the pride of possessions in this world next to Jesus and I say, Jesus, you're better. And then I put my, my parents and I put my brother and I put my sister and I put my children, and I put even my wife next to Jesus, and I say, Jesus, you're better. You cannot overcome the world apart from that type of faith. The person who comes to Jesus and places their trust in Jesus Christ says, look, I know this isn't easy, this isn't something I'm not going to struggle with, but 
but intellectually and in my heart, I'm making the acknowledgement that you are above all else. Your value is far greater than anything else that I can conceive now or could conceive in the future. You are of supreme value. How do we overcome? We overcome through faith. We overcome through faith in Christ. Here's the last thing I want us to think about this morning. This is an encouragement. You're an overcomer through faith in Christ, and you're going to receive all the rewards of an overcomer. Let me take you to the last book that we believe John wrote, the last book in your Bible. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. And there's this this moment in Revelation where as John's writing what Jesus tells him to the churches that he uses the word overcomer or conquer again and again and again. And I want you to, to listen to what John writes about overcomers and, and see all the rewards and promises that are given to those who overcome. To all of us who've been born of God, who are going to pursue God by God's grace. He, gives all, he, he talks to these different churches and he gives them warnings and he gives them encouragement. And then at the end of each of his address to these seven churches in Asia Minor, the Lord gives words of encouragement to those who are conquerors, to those who are overcomers. So, for example, to the church in Ephesus, this is in Revelation 2. In Revelation 2, verse 7, the Spirit says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He promises eternal life. When he's writing the church of Smyrna in Verse 11, he says, the one who conquers, same thing, will not be hurt by the second death. He's, he's promising eternal life. To the church in Pergamum in chapter 2, he says in verse 17, to the one who conquers, I will give him of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone. That white stone would have been given to people who were victorious in the games. I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the church in Thyatira in chapter 2, he says, in verse 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Chapter 3, the church of Sardis, he says in verse 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels to the church in Philadelphia. He says in verse 12, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar of the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God and out of heaven and my own new name. And then finally, to the church of Laodicea, he says in verse 21, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You see what's promised to the, to the overcomer? The overcomer is, is promised eternal life. The overcomer is, is, is promised is, is promised rewards of a conqueror, of, of God knowing them personally and, and intimately. This promise of, the promise of the overcomers is to each of us 
who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. You and I, whether we are aware of it on a moment-by-moment basis or not, you and I, every single one of us, are engaged in a battle for our affection, for our worship, for our love. The danger that many of us face is that we're not aware of this battle. Our, Our temptation is to just simply love the things of the world. The good news of the gospel is that everyone who has been born of God cannot ultimately love the things of the world. All of us, by God's grace, through our faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, will ultimately love God through faith in His Son, Jesus. My encouragement, my plea to you this this week would be to ask God to help you help you examine your heart and to show you the things that which you still love the world. And then by your faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, in other words, comparing Christ's value to all the things you would consider Christ the supreme over all things, and that God, through your faith in Jesus, would give you the victory of an overcomer. Let's pray. We love you, Father. We love you. We love the victory we have through faith in your Son. Give us that victory, not just in the future, but today in our moment-by-moment lives. We pray this for your glory in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.